0: hello and welcome to the art of the cup podcast brought to you in partnership with boris of and our sponsor jump desktop i'm steve hallfish i'm a working film and tv editor for the last eight years i've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors i've been using boris effects products for more than 20 years and i'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content Today on Art of the Cut, we're talking with editor Alan Edward Bell about editing the film Where the Crawdads Sing, which was based on the 2018 best-selling novel. Bell has been a guest on Art of the Cut several times for his work on The Hunger Games movies and Red Sparrow. Alan is an Ace Eddie nominee for his work on 500 Days of Summer. His other films include The Amazing Spider-Man, Water for Elephants, and Gulliver's Travels. Before we hop into our discussion with him, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com/cut to begin your free, no limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner Boris Effects, I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris FX is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com AOTC. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now my discussion with Alan Edward Bell, ACE. First of all, my wife and I went to go see it last night. Loved it, loved it, loved it. She was a big fan of the book and was very pleased with the depiction and and all that stuff, so congratulations.
1: I'm so happy to hear that. I was very nervous when I started seeing the the Rotten Tomatoes 35% fresh from the critics before the opening. And I thought, my goodness, am I completely out to lunch? Because I really loved the movie, and all of us worked so hard on it, and really put our heart and souls into it to try to make the best movie we could. And audiences that we tested it with absolutely loved it. And the issues that they had on some of our early testing, we learned from those, made changes, and it just got better. And so I was really just sort of like, wow, am I completely out to lunch or, you know, what's going on? I was very confused. And so the fact that our audience numbers are so high and the studio is very happy about that, the studio wasn't expecting it to make 17 million this weekend. They were thinking it would make 12. I mean, it's a really difficult time to release a film and then to counter program in the middle of summer, right after the pandemic with a movie that's particularly geared towards female, older female audiences was a huge risk. I mean, I was really sort of oh boy, this I, couldn't we have waited till September? You know, <laughs> clearly, you know, Tom Rothman and the folks over at Sony know a heck of a lot more about releasing movies than I do, and they seem to think that it's going to do quite well. Right now, the the budget is listed at forty four million on Box Office Mojo, but that's not true. It's significantly less. It was right around thirty to make the movie. You know, I'm told that the film makes 17 on its opening weekend, you can expect it to make at least four to five times that during its life. So that's a success for a movie like this.
0: Some people might know Reese Witherspoon was involved in this as an executive producer or anything else.
1: Yeah, Reese was creatively involved as an executive producer.
0: She said she was really interested in getting the feeling of the book correct. Can you talk to me a little bit about your discussions with anybody in the creative team, the director, Olivia Newman, or anybody about what your marching orders were for this?
1: We wanted to create something that was as true to the book as possible. And one of the things about the book is it really is that feeling. Barring the poetry in the book itself, the narrative style of the book was very poetic, and it it really celebrated nature in the marsh and the cycle of life in the marsh. And to do that in a movie and not have it feel like a documentary is a bit of a challenge, certainly when you're trying to get the plot, progress the plot and character arcs and things. But one of the things that's interesting about the material is that Kaya and the marsh are almost... They're like partners. There's a real symbiosis there. So having her in that environment and seeing her, particularly little little Kaya, Jojo, it made it pretty easy because you could see the reflection. First of you, they're in this beautiful environment. And then you have these wonderful actors and, and actresses who are reflecting the environment that they're in. When Kaya's in her boat, I mean, that first montage of her going through the water when she takes her dad's boat, The first cut of that was super long because I just, I couldn't stop looking at it. And Paul Alderman, (laughs) who was the first assistant who has an additional editing credit on the movie, he did one of the first passes of that and he did just a beautiful job. And both he and I were like, you know, we love this, it's never going to be this long in the movie. We're going to have to cut it down because I think that everybody knew that we had to, the Marsh had to be a character in the movie. And the best way to do that is to make sure that your your protagonist is in the marsh as much as possible. As as many things positive could happen to her in the marsh, so that when she's in jail and in courtroom, there's a real contrast, right, between taking this woman's environment away from her is one of the worst things that you could possibly do to to that particular character. So I think that in talking to Livy, who was my main Certainly, the person who I got most of my marching orders from certainly early on in the process and throughout the process, it was a great collaboration. We were both on the same page the marsh has to play a big part in this movie and that feeling of the marsh and her, the character's relationship with the marsh has to be, if it's not overt, it needs to be subtextual throughout the whole film.
0: I love these little moments of breathing that are in the film, especially between scenes, just moments where you're not getting dialogue, you're just getting that chance to feel things. Talk to me about putting those in your initial cut, but then also being able to maintain them when you're trying to trim the film for time.
1: That was very difficult. One of the things that I knew early on in making a movie is when you do a studio film, every studio has its kind of caveats and its own personality, if you will. I know that Sony and Tom uh, Rothman in particular, they really want things to dry. they you're not going to show Tom Rothman a three-hour film and have him say, "This is awesome." Yeah, it's great. You know, there can't be a bunch of shoe leather entrances and exits, and any time there's double ideas going on within scenes, like all that stuff is going to go. And so you know that going in. And one of the early conversations I had with Libby was, "I know you want to shoot this stuff, but we're going to be cutting a lot of it out if." you're making uh, the thin red line is never going to fly like we can't there can't be a lot of really long pauses because they'll, those would be the first thing that the studio says remove and by and large that was true and it's true of every studio I'm not really it sounds like a criticism but it's part of the process you can't have these really long pauses so the early cuts were there were quite a bit more of those and they were a bit longer and we all loved them, but I knew that was never going to be the case. So it was really a whittling down of, do we have too many birds? Do we have enough insects? Or is it the right shot? And the one shot in particular, I think you mentioned in an email, the alligator shot, that was a shot that was in early on, which we then removed for time, and Livy really fought hard and finally like it was one of the last shots we actually put back in the movie before the sheriff and deputy enter her house and the reason for that and the reason why we chose an alligator I don't think there's a huge amount of tension you see an alligator in the water and but we wanted to give the sense that later on when she's running from them and she dives in the water these waters have alligators in them and to give that little moment of breath. So it did double duty, but I don't know how effective it was. I mean, I doubt you were on pins and needles when you saw the alligator because it wasn't really connected to anyone.
0: Well, a lot of times it sets something up, right? The use of a shot is not in itself by itself at that moment. But those
1: moments, we knew that we needed those moments in the movie. The movie does jump around in time quite a bit. And it's not like there's any complicated ideas in the film. There really aren't. But You need rest, let one land, take a little bit of a moment and move on. It's funny, when I just saw the movie in the premiere, I was sitting there thinking, gee, did we cut some of this stuff too tightly? But that's just because there is a version of the movie that's two hours and 15 minutes within credits that I really like. I really love this version as well.
0: And this is 205 with credits?
1: This is 205 with credits, yes. I don't know how to make this movie much tighter without really, really going too deep.
0: No, I can see how a 215 would be nice and open and breathing but also i when i saw the 205 on the when i looked at the movie times i'm like okay a little touch over two felt right you know
1: yeah you it's easy to, to get yourself particularly if it's a movie that maybe you're not if your partner is dying to see it and you want to go with them you're like okay i can go for this two-hour ride and what we're hoping is that that if that's the case that people who who go in with that particular idea in mind it's not really the movie i want to see but it's not so long Will be really pleasantly surprised that it's not, it doesn't drag and it's fun and you like the characters and it's a fable. It really is. It, it should be compared with the same view as a movie like Harry Potter or Top Gun Maverick. It shouldn't be looked at as an art house film. It should be looked at as a summer escape film that's for a, a slightly more mature audience. It's not, if you don't want to see a bunch of lightsabers and people shooting each other in airplanes, this is the movie for you. And I really loved this film, and when I read the script, I was like, it's been a long time since I've read a script where I'm like, A, they don't, it feels like those movies don't get made, these movies don't get made anymore, and B, to be able to be in contention, to be able to be an editor on it, I was like, I really hope that I like this director. I fell in love with her in my first interview, and I was just super, super thrilled to be involved.
0: Tell me a little bit about the book itself. Did you read it either to prepare for your interview or before you started editing?
1: Um, I did read it before I started editing. I, or I should say I read it as part of my interview process. So I read the script and I really enjoyed the script, although the script was was a little long, the version that I had read. So I read the script and I really liked the script. And then as I was talking to Livy, because we had several Zoom meetings, she was like, why don't you read the book? And so I read the book over two days over the weekend. And I really enjoyed the book. It's interesting because I think I think in the same way that if you read the book first and then you see the movie or you read the script, you're kind of biased to that initial piece of material and the way it affected you. And so when I read the script, I loved it. And then when I read the book, I loved the book. But any time the book left Kaya, because the book is definitely much more a murder mystery told through Kaya's eyes, but also we leave her point of view and go through the sheriff and deputy quite a bit. And the courtroom is really just in the last third of the book. And I found that the sheriff and deputy weren't, while their characters were interesting, I wanted to get back to Kaya. Every time I left Kaya in the book, I just wanted to get back to her. And the movie really didn't have that issue because Kaya was pretty much always there. When you're in the courtroom, she's part of that experience. When you're off investigating a murder with these two country law enforcement people, she's nowhere around. I found that I enjoyed the script a little bit better than the book, but I think it was because of that initial dopamine hit of the Kaya and the Marsh and how compact it
0: was. Yeah, well, that's definitely how my wife felt about it, that it was very, as a fan of the book, she was very satisfied. It's interesting that she wanted you to, Olivia wanted you to read it because I have talked to multiple editors who have done book adaptations and it's about a 50-50 split between no, I do not want to be exposed to that because then I'm thinking I know stuff about the story that, I, that the audience might not know. And others that say, I really want to know it so I'm immersed and I understand and I feel part of the story.
1: The thing for me, honestly, I am more on the the fence of I don't want to be hamstrung by trying to stick to the book too much. So if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't have read the book. On the Hunger Games series, I read those books because basically Francis Lawrence said, we're making the books. So read the book and the script isn't ready yet. So just read the book which I did, and we went back to the book a lot. In this case, because I read the script, I responded to the material so well, and you and I both know everyone who's tried to make a movie. A movie is a completely different beast than a book. I didn't really want to read the book, but you know, when you're interviewing for a job and you still don't have the job and you fall in love with the director and they're like, maybe you could read the book. I'm like, okay, you say jump... You do it. You know, I'll say how high. And I read the book. Having said that, I'm actually glad I did because when you're working with filmmakers who have read the book and really into the book and they're talking about things in the book and how they relate to the movie, it's really good to, to have an understanding of what they're talking about and be able to take part in those thematic conversations and ideas. If I hadn't read the book, there's a whole lot about the subject matter that I wouldn't have been privy to. So that helped. It helped to have had read the book in this case.
0: So interesting. You mentioned that the movie jumps around a little bit and the structure of the movie is much different than the structure of the book, correct?
1: It's not that much different because the book does jump around a bit. The book starts off with this murder mystery and then goes back in time. But instead of the investigation and then the courtroom, we broom away the investigation. You get that out of the way right away, and it's a courtroom drama essentially. We don't really meet Kaya until she's running from the police. In the book, you meet Kaya. There's a murder mystery. Hopefully, I'm not getting this wrong. It's been over a year since I read the book, but it's structurally they're very similar, but the meat and potatoes of the interstitials are different.
0: And they were the same as the script, however? Or, or did you find yourself restructuring things in the edit?
1: We restructured quite a bit in the edit. Not a huge amount, but we did move things a bit. we It's funny, when I first read the script, both Livy and I were like, oh, we're going to be moving stuff all over the place. But because there are two relationships in the movie and they both have to go through their, their up and then they're down, and there's only so much that you can do. You can't really take the first relationship and put it like when you start doing that you confuse things quite a bit so it was really more about what happens between the courtroom scenes and which courtroom scenes would be there or which there were a number of scenes that ended up being lifted just for time and also because emotionally they were really heavy but they dragged the movie down in a way just time-wise so this particular Script had 205 scenes, which is a tremendous number of scenes. The first assembly that I did was 2 hours and 23 minutes. The first, what I showed the director was 2 hours and 17 minutes. So we cut a significant amount of, you know, an, an hour and 13 minutes of the movie. And while we saved quite a bit of time internally within scenes themselves by making them more efficient, most of that time was by actually removing material from the movie.
0: Getting in and out of the flashbacks, there's a couple of flashbacks. Sometimes people choose for some kind of a device to get them inside flashbacks. My recollection was that there's no device. It's a cut.
1: Yeah, just just cuts. There were a few dissolves in the movie, mostly for the traditional time. The purpose of saying time has gone by. Most of those, it was just a straight cut because it just felt like that was the vernacular of the movie and while there are a couple of little clever devices which were more visual like the reading montage where it feels like one big shot panning around or or when they're getting old and we cross they're in the tree bird watching and then we pass over pan over and then they're much older in another boat you know those were really the only kind of clever things that we did because we needed to really pace the movie up and find ways to tell parts of the story that took much longer in the book but a movie can't withstand you know this wasn't really a time to have flashy clever things that took you out of the movie and one of the things that Livy was really adamant about and I was in total agreement with her is that you know a lot of the courtroom stuff anytime you can put it over something else and we can get some more flavor of the town or that wherever we are yeah a, it paces it up, and it, a courtroom scenes are the embodiment of expositional dialogue. I mean, in this case, they're talking about things and ideas that maybe we haven't seen in some of the earlier versions of the script, and certainly in the book, there was a whole lot about you know what she did or didn't do that was visualized in the book, and it was also visualized in early versions of the script. We didn't take the time to show all that stuff, so it became kind of interstitial. And as much of that as you can have over the outside of other images, so because the courtroom is relatively, you know, it's a bunch of brown walls. We, we all know who the people are, and it's a courtroom drama, but it's really a love story. So we were trying to find the balance, so we weren't spending too much time in this this dull courtroom, which is really not where Kaya belongs, and as much time outside. So that was how that worked out is as much as we could and allow that transitions to help us bridge time rather than doing something flashy, you've got oh, we're heading into the courtroom and then now you're in the courtroom. So it was twofold. Yeah.
0: I was also thinking with the lack of a transition into the flashback that if I remember correctly, into going to the first flashback, she almost says, here's a flashback right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. She's like, I had a family once. And then there you are, you're back in time with her and the feather. And this movie, it means a lot to me. It was really, I feel like some of my best work is in it. And I enjoyed working on it so much. You know, I was, I was really one of the only men involved, certainly in post other than some of the studio executives. But Honestly, I'd be in these and we would screen for 3,000 pictures and I'd be in a room, there'd be 11 of us and I was the only male. It was really made by women. I, look, I think on every movie, it doesn't matter what your sex is, you're doing your best to make the best movie you can. But when you're in a table with a bunch of men and there's maybe three women or two women involved, the women have to lift their voices up much higher to be heard by the men and the men do a lot of sort of blustery stuff and it feels less collaborative. When I was working with Elizabeth Gabler and Aaron Simonoff and Aslan and Lauren and Rhonda Fear, all the women and Olivia, obviously, and Veronica, all these wonderful women who had these great creative ideas. I was able to sit back and listen to how they're working with each other and I was in a position where I wasn't always talking first and I didn't have to ram my idea. A lot of times when you're in a room with a bunch of men, you even when you're a man, you have to if you want to be heard, you have to force your message out there. Because they're all jockeying, they all want to be heard. We're like a bunch of little soldiers. And when you're with a bunch of people who are behaving differently, it was really interesting to me. And a lot of times I was the guy where they were like, So, what do you think? What does the (laughs) one guy think? And it was nice to be in that position. I really enjoyed it. It was great to see what a bunch of super talented, strong, creative women could create. And I was so grateful to be part of it.
0: Having worked on, uh, Oprah for 12 years. I know how you feel. Yep, a very female-centric environment and lovely and and collaborative. And yep, let's talk about VO and the use of VO and how that might have evolved through the course of production or post.
1: Well, it was the voiceover was always in the script and there was plenty of it. There was a lot of weather breaks and things during shooting. Lightning storms and different flooding of the set and all sorts of crazy things. I'm always trying, hey, if there's a bunch of voiceover, why don't you record it before you shoot a frame of footage so I have some to cut to which never happens, because they're, it's just, they're like, that's, we can always do that later. And they're right, you know, you're shooting a movie, the last thing you wanna do is like, yeah, let's record the voiceover before we do anything. But in this case, about halfway through shooting, because there was some downtime, I called Olivia, and she's like, I don't know what we're gonna do. I'm like, why don't you record the voiceover? She's like, oh, great idea. So she did that, and so we had the voiceover, and when it's a voiceover film, You're constantly recording and re-recording because you're changing things quite a bit. A perfect example is in the book, once she discovers that Chase has a fiance, in the book she actually gets in her boat and she goes out into sea towards a storm to challenge herself. And then the waves take over and she decides that she's had enough and she goes back in and gets the will like, nature shows me the way. That's really easy to tell when you can just explain what somebody's thinking in a book. In a movie, visually, it's a lot harder to do without voiceover. So there was a lot of voiceover there throughout the book, but that was one key place. We ended up removing the storm because the middle of the ocean really wasn't an environment that we ever saw her in, and it didn't make a lot of sense, and the effects were going to be so big and expensive, and it just it really didn't work for the movie, so we pulled that out and once we pulled it out we're like you can't really have her oh he's got a fiance have her break down in the bushes and then the next scene is hey guess what your book sold here's five thousand dollars everything's going to be great like you've got to have that that bottom out bit and then the recovery so we came up with something else which is her running through the woods and running out to the beach and collapsing on the beach and we actually used some of the footage from the boat when she comes back from the boat she got out of the boat and collapsed and painted out the boat and stuff but that voiceover changed quite a bit because the voiceover that you'd use for her out in the boat is quite a bit different than what you'd use for this and throughout the movie that was the case so we probably recorded and Liddy and other people mostly Olivia though we rewrote her voiceover probably three times throughout the whole movie to the point to where we'd be getting ready for a screening and sending out like hey can you record something on your iphone and send us these lines or just this word and i was recording stuff anybody who sounded anybody like one of the characters you're just constantly trying stuff and i think that's the nature of voiceover because you want it to be as used as little as necessary but if you are working on a movie that's going to have voiceover there has to be enough so that when you hear it, you're not all of a sudden surprised by it each time. So hopefully we we work that out okay. I think we did.
0: You used a pre-lap to get into the trial. Can you talk about the value of a pre-lap and why you do that? Why you don't do them all the time, but you do them sometimes?
1: I think it has to do with what people are saying. In this case, it's just to help with the transition because we're not doing anything special. And one of the things that this movie is not there aren't a ton of establishing shots in this movie. You know, If it was a TV show, there'd be an exterior of a courtroom and the pre-lap would be over the exterior of the courtroom. In this case, we're like, get rid of that, which we never shot anyway, and just keep it flowing. Um, Some of the pre-laps that we did later in the movie, like for instance, for the closing arguments, those were really more about saving time and also the defense's closing argument, so the David Strathern, the Tom character, his clothing argument was really the one that sort of told you what the prosecution was going after. And it was really the big sort of, here's what they're telling you happened, here's what I'm saying happened. And the courtroom trope, like we all know how it works and we've all, the audience has seen enough courtroom dramas to know that there's this, there's a rebuttal. There's, and then eventually you get to the closing arguments and then the jury goes in and they come back. And, they, and so once you're at that point, to belabor it with a bunch of like, okay, let's hear the prosecutor do his closing argument. Now let's hear, it's sort of like by pre-lapping really the end of the prosecuting's argument, ending closing argument, so that you're not even getting it all. You're like com- coming in midstream. It gave us the time to give the defense's closing argument, which really paints the picture of why she should be found innocent in as efficient a possible way. So that was really more about, one, using the fact and saving time, really, what that means.
0: It's so interesting to think about using the audience's own learning or skill set of watching a story, right, to, to your advantage yeah
1: advantage. it's funny because that's one of the things that i've noticed more and more throughout my career is recognizing what what do audiences expect and what are they tired of and, and i find this even in myself like i'll be watching something and i'm like wow like there's so many entrances there's so much like people just walking around and i'm like when are we going to get to the meat of the story and like sometimes I find that takes me out of the film because I'm just waiting and I'm not luxuriating in the wait I'm just waiting I found that like I love Game of Thrones but I found that it was like why is everybody walking in and walking out and like and I realized it's because people wanted more that the episodes were too short so they're like all right let's make them longer and that might be fine if you're like love looking at all the Fantasy stuff on the walls and things like that, but most modern audiences they want to get going, and it's different between like our episodic and a two-hour show. If you get a two-hour show, five minutes is walking or driving around. Like you're gonna lose your audience, I think. And so I I try to really think about what you know, like. Who are we making this for? What are the current trends in viewership? Back in when we were transitioning from film to non-linear. People would complain about MTV, like people don't, they don't have, they're all a bunch of ADHD, nobody has the, they can't wait and sit for any time, and you know what, that's very true, and if it was true, then it's even more today, but there are things that people understand. They just understand because they've seen it so much, so you can take that stuff for granted and use it to your advantage, I think.
0: I love that. You used Puccini diegetically on tate's dad's boat and then allowed that to continue into the next scene was that scripted or did you say oh no
1: that was something i did oh i love it yeah and it's funny because you're touching on one scene that we removed from the movie that it's the only scene that i like every time i see the film like oh i really (laughs) wish that scene was still in basically it was just on the boat turn my music up and then that was going to be the end of the scene and The way it was is she's. we cut to her and she smells his clothing. And then we cut to her and she's on her boat and she's in a wide body of water and presumably she's headed towards Jumpin's. And about 100 yards away is the shrimp boat and Tate and his father are there joking around. But she can see them, but they can't see her. And she goes along. And so I, I had those there and it was wonderful to have the Puccini playing all the way through that so you started at the boat then we let it go up and turn it into score and it was really great but for time we had the studio really wanted to remove it and so we removed that scene but yeah that I just did that because I thought it was really cool and I thought it was you don't it just felt like right for the movie for me so I, I did it and when Olivia heard it I think she really responded to it and it was it was a mixed bag. Some people loved it more than others, but it stuck, and that made me happy. The music was interesting for me. I mean, I'm just going to go on to this now.
0: Yeah, it's, please. It's
1: part of it. So I'm a very visual person, and I try to get music editors on as early as possible. But when you have a movie like this where you don't have a huge budget, it's very hard to get a music editor on before you're like halfway through the director's cut. It's really difficult. The studios load to pay that money. So it was incumbent upon me to come up with whatever music we were going to use for temp score early on and I was really struggling trying to find the love theme or something that would really help support the Tate and Kaya relationship. And because I'm visual, I don't have a huge catalog of music in my brain to pull from so I traditionally what I will do is I'll think how did I feel like what movie made me feel in a similar way and then I'll go back to that soundtrack and see if I can pull something from that and I did a lot of that but I wasn't happy with what I found and both of my kids you may actually hear some piano if they start practicing but both of my kids are not for me but for my wife They're classical pianists, and my middle son is quite accomplished. My six-year-old, at the time he was six, he's just learning, but they both like to listen to classical music at night when they're going to bed. They have little Amazon Alexas, and I'll go in to tuck them, and they'll have music playing. And I went to go tuck in my youngest, Forrest, and there was this amazing piece of music playing on his Alexa. And I asked him, I said, who is this? And he said, oh, that's Georg Telemond. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like Georg Telemond It's got violin. And it is a piano piece, but there's a lot of violin here. And so I shazammed it, and it was actually this composer named Ionati, Ludovico Ionati. And he is a pianist, and he's a film composer. He did one album where he had this amazing violinist sort of overdub as things, or they've collaborated or something, it's called D- Dia Venere. And I was like, I'm going to try that for the love, the whole relationship. And I pulled from this album and I tipped the whole music, the whole movie with music that I literally, not the whole movie, but their relationship, the big chunks from this piece of music that my six-year-old turned me on to when I was putting him to bed <laughs> at night. And the, one of the great things about it is that Michael, Michael Dinah, our composer, who's just an amazing composer, where some composers, and I won't mention names, but some composers will copy. It'll just be a few notes different or it'll sound very similar. And I haven't really had, the, most of the people I've worked with don't do that. But what Michael does is he understand, He he gets the meat and the idea and the feeling and he creates something completely different from it but supports it in a better way so it was really wonderful to see him take what I did completely okay clean slate it but the emotional part magnify it and make it better so it was pretty good and then obviously halfway through the director's cut we did get temp music editor and then Michael's music editor came on and had some great temp music as well as Michael's music came in and we started to fill the movie out with score but I thought that was interesting because I'd never gotten temp score from uh, a six-year-old before that worked so well.
0: Were you editing at home?
1: I was editing at home just during production. I started in may and then working here i have a fairly state-of-the-art facility here in my basement
0: (laughs) we've talked about that it's pretty impressive i want to come see it sometime
1: yeah it's pretty cool although by the time you come see it it will probably just be a movie theater and it won't be an editing bay anymore i'm looking forward to pulling my editing console out because that's the choice seating that's where the sweet sound spot is and i'm like that's where i want to sit when i watch movies so i did that and then the studio really wanted me in la And I like working remotely. I've done quite a bit of it now, but I have to say when you're working with the director that you're trying to collaborate with, who you have not, you really haven't met them before, so much is spoken without words. So I was, while I wasn't happy about leaving my family, it made a lot of sense to me, certainly through the director's cut, to come out to Los Angeles and work with Olivia at this, on the Sony Studios lot. It went a lot longer than I'd wanted it to. The movie, the schedule continued. I was We were supposed to be done before Christmas. I ended up out in Los Angeles until the end of March. It was a long, quite a long time. We did take a one-month hiatus in the middle of it, but I was away from my family for a solid nine months, which is really rough it's it's.
0: yeah i i did something very similar i was in chicago cutting from november till april and then april till like yesterday in new york city yeah but it's so interesting though because you know you're talking about tucking your son into bed and being there and how that helped inspire you for something and you know the studios need to understand that having a life is valuable to them too you know
1: they they really do, and it's interesting to me that I was picked on this particular movie because I know Sony, there are other studios that are willing to pay quite a bit more. They are they tend to be known as penny pinchers. So to fly me out to LA and put me up for nine months and rent all my gear, get me a car and a hotel and all that stuff, That's that adds quite a layer of expense on top of just my, my rate. So I was very grateful that they were willing to do that, and hopefully... I won't ever have to leave for that amount of time again. I'm basically trying to retire, but honestly I can't retire until I turn 60. So I have one year left. I've been turning everything down. It's amazing, I get home and then literally I'm home for one week and I'm getting called, hey, can you do this, can you do this? I'm like, not until the end of summer. Call me when it's cold and wet outside (laughs) so I basically just told my agent like nothing until the end of September because I just I'm I need to soak up the love of my family and I'm also at the point now where I'm like okay I may have one more movie in me but I won't be leaving for nine months if the movie posts in New York I, I could do that because I could come home every weekend or there has to be something contractual that says that 6 weeks away, 6 weeks back, 6 weeks away, 6 weeks back because they just can't do it. I'm sure you have similar sentiments. It's hard. Yeah.
0: And my kids are older, so I, I, but I totally understand and being away that long, you definitely feel it. Yeah, it's hard. You lose it's not
1: that you lose the connections, but you know, you're not with the people that you love. Like it's really like they're you're divided so much and just the to keep it balanced you need to both be in the same time zone at the very least to share both the good and the bad and it just gets feels like work i mean i was very fortunate in that when i was in los angeles for 9 months i was actually living with some very dear friends of mine who were the writer directors of a movie i did in new york And it was at a pivotal point in my career. It was this movie called Little Manhattan, which I absolutely loved working on. And Mark and Jen Flackett levin they became very close friends of mine. And I was literally living in the pool house that we had cut (laughs) Little Manhattan on. And when I'd taken that job, I was one foot in the editing door, one foot out. I was like, am I going to be a VFX supervisor or am I going to be an editor? And at that time, I chose to be an editor. And they really recharged me because, okay, they're great people and there's good material. And so I was very fortunate. And what I really think helped me get through the nine months was that I had a built-in family of people that loved me, that I loved, that were there for me. And so that was really amazing. If I'd been in a hotel, I don't know if I would have been able to come back. After that one month hiatus, I I have a feeling I would have been like, "Mm, I'm going to stay here.
0: (laughs) Deal with it. Uh, Let's get back to the editing. There's a montage or a bunch of time jumps around her first kiss with Tate. Can you talk about that little sequence of the kiss?
1: I don't want to bash on the VFX. It's hard when you have a really tight schedule. You're shooting 205 scenes. That particular sequence they're by this tree and they're having this intimate conversation she's just asked him why did you teach me to read and do you have a girlfriend and he's awkward sometimes i don't right now like this and then he she asks about his mom and then he tells her the sad news that she passed away with his little sister and so we worked really hard on that sequence and the original bit at the tree, the conversation was always meant to be a slow push in. A lot of times when you don't have a lot of time and the movie wasn't an indie film, but with the amount of scenes, some scenes had to be shot like they were indie films. And so that was one where we were lacking a little bit of coverage. We didn't have close crosses, close ups for this really intimate conversation there at the tree. And what was supposed to happen is they're talking and they get interrupted by a wind gust and a dust devil of leaves what we created there the original photography was really it was a little awkward getting them to break that tight sort of heavy conversation with the leaves we had a couple leaves fall into frame but it just wasn't firing on all cylinders and also the issue was is they had these huge ritter fans that were right off screen like four or five of them and in a bag of leaves and this was supposed to make these and those things were like it was like having enormous vacuum cleaners right next to the the people talking, and so anytime they turn the fans off, any semblance of acting was gone. Like the intimacy, just even though you turn the sound off and you replace it, a thing happened behind the eyes where your senses are assaulted with this these jet engines, and you're supposed to be oh look at that, and so it was a little rough there, you know. That was all shot at high speed and 24 frame with multiple cameras, steady cam rotating around, but these fans were there blowing stuff all over. And when I first saw it, I was like, wow, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this exactly. And I created something that was really stylistic that wasn't really in the vernacular of the movie that on its own, I think worked quite well. But when I showed it to Olivia, she said, this is cool, but it's not really our movie. It needs to be more elegant. So we worked really hard to get the leaves in this sort of funnel shape. And then we basically did some additional photography to get those cross angles. But we had to manufacture the rear plates because we didn't have the actual angles to pull from. You know, I have a VFX background. So I went through and pulled a bunch of things that we could manufacture the plates from. And at one point, I even stole one of the shots of her before she even moves into him and created my own cross angle early on before we'd done any reshooting or additional photography in order to solve this problem. But So what we ended up doing is once they got out there, we wanted to try to create it a magical moment. And through changing the time speed and the kiss, they were supposed to bump into each other. We did a little bit with sound. It, In some ways, it's probably the goofiest of scenes in the movie in terms of just if you really look at it structurally, it's not our finest moment but I, I think once they kiss and they start talking again okay I'll buy that
0: that's, it's so interesting that that's your perspective and I totally get like there are scenes that I cut that that's the way I feel but as a viewer of the movie I felt no uncomfortableness in that at all oh
1: that's so good in to hear it's hard to, to jettison the baggage of the earlier experience so
0: totally understand I loved that I felt it was a completely magical moment in the movie
1: Well, that's what we were trying to do and it's really nice to hear that because for me it's purely an intellectual exercise because i know all the little tricks i know which shot is a comp and i know how hard we worked on those leaves and the speeds of the leaves and the size and the color and the it just and then the time warp and the change and the kiss is it too much is it long enough is it too short like the idea was for you to sort of get out of her head and have this thing happen and then come back into reality for a minute so
0: but was there also a section of kissing where it was time jumps oh they're kissing now and they're Just kissing they kiss later them. and
1: they kiss there and then they just go through this, it's like a kissing montage. And it goes from there to, I'm not sure what the very next scene is, but there's one piece where they're at, where they're on her porch and she's in this white dress and they're kissing and she leaves, he leaves, and then he comes back and gets another kiss and runs again. And When Daisy smiles, you can't help but light up with her. When Kaya is happy, it's, she's just the best bird. You just want to be around her. She's so magnetic and for me, that's one of the best parts of the movie is that whole kissing scene. And we, we shaped all that because it can go on for too long. And there there was quite a bit. There's on the beach, and then there's the diving in the water. And that's their little love montage, which builds up to the I'm not going to have sex with you scene with the geese. So, yeah, it was basically just...
0: <laughs> that sounds so wrong. I'm not going to have sex with you with the geese.
1: I know. I It's probably... the. Let's scratch that. It's the... the coitus interruptus and I don't know what the right thing is you know the moment where he's like look it's more pain it can be worse for you than me which in contrast you look at him and you look at chase no and then of course he does he disappears but yeah digressing here a little bit but we worked hard to try to make it was basically a kissing montage is what I called it and it was a standard montage but to get into it was that magical the idea is we wanted to create the feeling of what it feels like or visually try to portray the first love feeling because if you're middle-aged and you've loved and lost and loved and lost like that magical glow even when you fall in love again it's not quite as shiny as it was the first time so that was what we were trying to do was like here's look at how amazing this is for her so that's why we tried to get separate it from reality at the beginning and make it beautiful and build into the water
0: You've done a bunch of big action movies. Was your process and approach to the material the same for this as it was for the Hunger Games movies and Red Sparrow and all the others?
1: I think so. The way I've edited and the amount of time that I've included the other people in my cutting room in the process in terms of giving my assistants things to cut or recut has changed as I've gotten older. I've been much less interested in my ego and saying, oh, I cut every frame and so did this, but I went back over it. I realized... Right around the Red Sparrow time, that you know, Hunger Games as well. But by the time I got to Red Sparrow, and I was the only editor, it was like it's way more fun when you have more than one editor involved. One, you get to bounce things back and forth, and you can go home at seven o'clock sometimes, which is nice to be able to have a life outside of work. And it's nice to be able to mentor people. So I, I don't really think it's because of the material as much as because I've matured, and it's not as important to me to be the only one involved as it used to be when I was maybe first starting out. I was a little naive and felt like I needed all the credit. That's not as important to me as it once was. But by and large, my approach to the material is almost always the same because I'm trying to sort of tell the best story I can. That doesn't mean that the editing style doesn't change the film style. There's not a lot of opportunity for cutting action scenes in this movie. Though I will say I took the attempted rape scene where she fights back. That is by and large my first cut on that. It didn't really change at all. Except for maybe when she runs off. We made a little bit of a visual effect at the end there. With the guy in the boat. Because he used to be tied off and we made him move. But And that is very much when you have action chops. Okay, you're used to doing that. and You try to make it as visceral and as efficient and as you can. But... By and large, my approach to most of the material doesn't really change much from one genre to the next. I will say that the large action films, they're more time-consuming because you just have more footage and a number of set pieces with multiple cameras and visual effects weighing down. You're never really seeing the scene complete until late in the process, so you're having to imagine a lot while you're cutting it, whereas a movie like this, there's very little that's left to the imagination through the cutting process. I mean, we had some green screen, and blue screen, but that was really more just, oh, look at the beautiful marsh. It wasn't projectiles and vehicles and things blowing up, and it was more just background. So yeah, I, it's really, for me, it's more, I, I treat every film more or less the same and the tricks that I've learned on the action films I bring forward but yeah it's, I wish I had more to say on that
0: I'm also interested in the nuts and bolts of your approach are you a selects reel guy or do you just like having your bins laid out in frame view and how do you approach a scene from scratch
1: well from scratch. so part of what I do is I like my bins to be organized essentially just the way they are in the script and I like them in frame view and the largest size possible. And I'll have a bin of, they're just cards, they're just color-coded cards. And one might say good, or you know, NG, or it may have a character card, or say double. There's a little bit of information that I may throw in the bin and stick underneath the tile. And I'll watch everything. I watch everything. And then as I'm watching it, I'll make notes. And those notes, generally speaking, get typed into markers and spots. And I'll sometimes change the position of one clip or put a like one of those green cards behind it and i may even open up something and type a special reminder that's there and i'm not a big selects real guy i will do that for some big action things but for the most part i don't do that but i also use script syncs i have all that as well so i watch everything and as i'm watching everything i'm thinking about the performances that i like best and also structurally what I think the scene is about and what it needs. And then usually, this used to be something that I would only do once in a while, but it's become more and more my practice. I work very much in the way that you would if you had a moviola. I will basically mark the in and out. I might start at the center and go one direction or the other, but more often than not, because I've watched everything and I've thought about how I want to put it together, I'll start at the beginning and I'll literally... I mark the in and the out. That's the piece I want. and I just straight cut it into my timeline. And then I do the next piece, and I don't look. I just cut it together. It's really interesting. it was it took a lot of of patience and just fortitude to do that early on because the desire to go back and look at the cut and polish and try to was really hard. But once I did that, you can take a scene and cut it together rapidly that way. And the cut is probably shitty. It's by no means like, here it is. You've isolated, in some ways, I guess you could say it's a select performance reel of the scene because you've pulled the pieces that your initial gut instinct are, this is the performance, this is what I like about this. And I don't just pick one because I think it's better than the others. I always try to be able to vocalize why is this take better than the others? What's it going to do for me? I mean, I may not have that conversation out loud with somebody, but in my head, that's what I'm like. I like this because she does that, or he does this moment. This is the important, that's really good. Um, So I cut all that together. And then I look at it. Usually I take a break and move on to another scene and recut something and then come back, or I go to lunch or whatever and I look at it and then I recut it. But the cool thing about that is that that's how we used to cut in the movie days. You're also, I find that in doing that, I'm thinking about the out points as much as I am thinking about the end points. And in nonlinear editing, it's so easy to just cut this thing in and oh, I think right around here is a good spot. And so that by and large, I almost do that on certainly every dialogue scene that's how i approach it initially and then i just start to unravel it from there tighten it swap things out change things see things that i thought worked but didn't work or some i'm often surprised by things at how my initial idea worked and it's really good because you're not thinking about matching i'm only thinking about performance and all the rest of that stuff comes in later for me and it makes it fast and it doesn't feel tedious because when you when I'm sitting there like belaboring every cut and like, oh is this performance better for the I'm trying three different takes and I haven't even structured the whole thing out it all yeah. overwhelming you can spend four hours and you don't have anything to riff off of it's all about movement and keeping the the tempo and I don't mean the tempo of internally the cut I mean your tempo as an editor the process of watching dailies can sometimes feel so tedious that once you're done with that process and, and the world of like, Oh, I'm only going to watch the circle takes like that world, that ship sailed so long ago. Like every director I work with, half of them are like, Oh, I don't even talk to the, I don't pick those things. I'm like, you don't. Okay. I'll watch them all. And you should do anyway, or at least from my perspective, you should, but it can really be like, you know, you're exhausted sometimes by the end of that and it's nice to just hit the ground running and make some progress to make up for that four hours that you spent watching and note-taking but you know all of that pays off later when i open that bin a month later with the director and i can see oh right this is what this is and here are those three cuts that i had and that was the progression and that groundwork really helps
0: alan can you talk to me a little bit because you've cut a lot of action movies. You've obviously done stuff before that. How do you think you got this job or what do you think the director saw in you that they wanted?
1: Well, it's really interesting because this film was, normally you meet a director, you read the script, you go, okay, yeah, I want to meet. You meet the director and whether it's in person or it's on Zoom, you have a 45 minute meeting, an hour meeting maybe, or hour and a half. And then you separate and then you get a call from your agent, you got it or you didn't. This movie was quite a bit different. One, I know they were looking for a while for different people. When I got the script, it was, Hey, they're getting very close to wanting to shoot and they need to meet you like tomorrow. Can you read the script tonight? And so I read it and I really liked it. And then I met Libby and I really enjoyed meeting her. She was already in Louisiana. You know, she was like three weeks out from shooting. And she asked me what I thought about the material and I told her how much I loved it. And then she asked if I'd read the book and I said, no, I haven't. I generally, we're making a movie, it's not the same as a book. We talked for like 45 minutes and then she left. And then the next day I got an email from her, directly from her saying, hey, can you think of some other movies that might be touchstones? And I pulled up some Terrence Malick movies that I really liked that I thought, you know, sort of visually these are touchstone and could work. And we talked in email. And she said, hey, can we have another meeting on Zoom? So we had another meeting on Zoom with her. And she's like, you know, I really wish you'd read the book. And I'm like, okay, I'll read the book. And so I read the book. And then we had another meeting with her. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've never interviewed so much on a movie. Like, she damn well better hire me. So (laughs) I read the book. And I got back to her. And I think the thing that really tipped the tables for her Because I'd read the script first and I was biased towards the script over the book, and that's not to say that I didn't love the book, but I really felt like, oh, this is a complete movie. There's some work to do on the script, but this is a good, good movie. And I think that a lot of the people that she'd interviewed had read the book first, and their criticisms of the script were things that weren't in the script that they loved in the book. You know, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think for her experience, she really was excited by somebody who really loved the script material. And then what I also think helped was having Lauren Neustadter and Elizabeth Gabler being the studio executive who I did Water for Elephants with. Both Reese Witherspoon was there, and then Scott, Lauren's husband, was the writer of 500 Days of Summer. So I'd had really good experiences with those people. And I think they were you know, whispering in her ear, Alan's a, like, he's a good guy. He may be doing these big action films, but he's talented, you, you're gonna be in good hands. So I think that helped. And so it was interesting to me. This is the first time I've, I've actually got hired on a movie and had some of my peers, people who I respect. And I'm just like, I can't believe that she hired me over them because I certainly wouldn't have call me up and say hey I really wanted that movie I can't believe you took it away from me you know which a to have another editor call you when that happens and say congratulations I'm so happy for you is a big deal and b the people that they were I'm not gonna say their names but it meant so much to me that these are people that I look up to and I'm like I'm just grateful that I'm willing to walk in their company it was a clearly a movie that a lot of people were wanted and it was An interesting process, none to say the least, to to have three Zoom meetings, several phone calls, you know, what can we cut out of the script, all before I got that, yep, we're going to hire you.
0: Alan, since you are there with your family in a beautiful place and it's the summer, I want to let you uh, have some fun and get out there. Uh, Happy birthday also as well. I just really enjoyed the movie. Thank you so much for cutting a great film.
1: Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's really what matters most.
0: That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, the new online home of Art of the Cut, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guest, Alan Edward Bell, ACE, Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast, and thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out Jump's offer at jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week.